So this morning, we are looking upon the subject of sex and spirituality, and what's the relationship between these two. As you have noticed, undeniably, all through our spiritual history, all through the planet, like wherever there was spirituality emitted, received, taught, practiced, the, the relationship between sex and spiritual practice has been clear. And the relationship has been, as long as you engage in things sexual, you can forget about the spiritual life. And as long as you're going to be on the spiritual path, you have to terminate the sexual life. Completely, down to zero. The word that's used generally for this is celibacy. Refraining from sex forever and ever, like finished. It is in this life, it's not going to happen. And one becomes celibate. And celibacy means 100% no sex. No sex with the opposite sex, no sex with your own sex, no sex with your right hand, left hand, with your mind and your dreams. You bring that down to zero. And then, okay, something spiritual can happen. Correct? You think about the great world religions. Judaism. What is Judaism's take on sex and spirituality? With this one, it's uh, some very orthodox Jewish people are very anti-sex, like sex and God don't go together. To that, for them, the Jewish God gets very upset with the idea of sex. And you go back to the Old Testament, where you have the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the fruit of knowledge and crunch and, oh, what's this? And then they did the hanky-panky. And then what did the Jewish God have to say about their discovering sex and doing it. They applaud and say, bravo, bravo, my two beautiful children. You have, you know, the, you found the secret of life. You, and no, he doesn't applaud them. He doesn't congratulate them. He gets angry and he boots them out of the kingdom of heaven, of the Garden of Eden. And he calls them sinners. You have committed the original sin. Yes? And we, I don't need to go more into that story, but it cut, the idea is clear. Other Jewish uh, denominations or certain people are more friendly to it, but then it has to be done under certain situation only, like only after being married. Then it's not a sin, but you do sex outside of marriage, oh, then it's a sin. And if you do it just for pleasure, then, mm, but if you do it for kids, then it's okay, and so on. Okay. Christianity comes and takes this even further. Like for the Christian part, sex is an absolute no-go. That's why every single Christian mystic, from Jesus himself, to the apostles, to the rest of the men and women saints, even if they were indulging in sex before they went strong on the path of Christianity, as a spiritual path, yeah, not just as a, I'm a Christian and I, uh, yeah, but real every day, practice, prayer, and so on, every one of them went celibate. Give me a Christian saint, male or female, who was not practicing celibacy. They don't exist. So, Christianity is a path which goes against sex. Islam has its own things about the sex. The Jewish, Christian, Islamic, God is somehow having a very not 
happy relationship with sex. Then you have Buddha and the Buddhist path. All Buddhist monks and nuns go celibate. There is no sex in Buddhism. Maybe as a Buddhist householder you still do it, but that's not being full on the path, right? You look in India. Most of the yogis, men and women of India, went celibate. Now, the modern person says, no, no, I want to do spirituality. And I think all these prophets and yogis and saints and mystics, you know, they were all just conspirators. They just told a big lie. What's the problem with sex? Sex is great. Look, I'm having fun. Sex is good. And blah, blah, blah. And they think they can do spirituality, continuing the sexual life the way the sex is usually practiced. And the mystics are screaming, it's not going to work. Like really, come on. Do we think that people of such detachment, mystics, prophets, saints, yogis, yoginis, of such detachment, of such detachment to what? To their own ego, to their, to they conquer their ego. What have they got to get by playing a cruel joke on humanity that says, and each one whispers to the one, Moses tells Jesus, Jesus tells you know, Muhammad, Muhammad tells uh, whatever. You know? And they go on like this, that, by the way, of course sex and spirituality are very good friendly, very friendly with each other, but just to fuck up everybody on the planet and make their life really hard, take away the one thing that's really pleasant for them and tell them with sex you can't read spirituality. And they make a joke on the whole humanity. Can this be? It's not. The truth is, there is a certain, certain issues with sex and its relationship with spirituality. And it's correct, and I'm about to explain to you why, that sex... Under the, un, in the way it is understood, or shall I say misunderstood. Sex, the sexual energy, your relationship with your own vital sexual energy and your own sexual fluids, as men, as women, and your, the way lovemaking is done. That style of lovemaking will not encourage things spiritually. Things will not work spiritually. And let's see why. So the mystics were right. And the, the answer is this. What I tell you next is expressed in India under the name of Brahmacharya. I've written it there on the board. Brahmacharya. The word Brahmacharya or the, the, this teaching of Brahmacharya falls into the category of the Yamas and Niyamas. I introduced a bit last, last evening for you. The Yamas are the refrain yourself from. And we spoke about non-violence, ahimsa, satyam, don't tell lies, speak the truth, astaya, non-theft. And the fourth of those, don't do this and that, is brahmacharya. And the word brahmacharya means to be a master of the creative force of the universe. Brahma is the symbol, is the personification of the creative aspect of the universe. That aspect of the divine that creates, that emits the universe, is Brahma. And that creative force in this universe is the sexual force. Everything is propagated through the sexual energy. From the, from the, 
at least according to the Indian Tantra, for in that metaphysics, the whole universe is the creation of the love-making of the cosmic masculine principle symbolized, personified in the form and with the name of Shiva. And the cosmic feminine principle, the cosmic yin, personified, symbolized in the name and the form of Shakti. That Shiva and Shakti are making love everywhere in this universe, wherever they find each other. And it's funny to say where they find each other because they are always together. And what do they do when they are together? They make love. You have plus and minus in the atoms. That Shiva and Shakti at the level of the atoms. And the atom is a love making of Shiva and Shakti. And going from the atoms to the vegetation, when you have the germination of a seed and the seed germinates, that's a sexual phenomena at the level of the seed. When you have the pollination process happening, when the flower, which is a sexual organ of the plant, and the bees and the butterflies do their activities inducing pollination, transporting pollen from here to there. Pollen is vegetal sperm. And that pollination process and everything that happens through it, you know, the emergence of the seed, the seed germinating into the ground, a new sapling growing into a plant, a tree, and so on. This is sexuality at the level of the vegetation. How do the animals create, procreate? Sexuality again. Even an amoeba, a monocellular animal, that process where it multiplies itself into two, at its level is a sexual process. And then you have sexuality at the level of the human beings. But the tantric mystics say this is going everywhere in the universe. And Shiva and Shakti are making love. And we are all born, this whole universe is born out of that cosmic love making. In India this is symbolized by the symbol of the Yoni Lingam. In every temple in India you are going to find somewhere this symbol where you have this vertical shaft representing the phallus of Shiva, the Shiva Lingam, and the horizontal part which represents the yoni of Shakti, the gateway of creation. And it's together. Shiva is penetrating Shakti. It's a sexual symbol, but it's a metaphysical sexual symbol. And it is adored it is worshipped, it is prayed upon, blessings are asked through it. So the relationship of the ancient tantrics in regards to sexuality was different from the Christians, the Buddhists and so on. And again, I'm not talking about right or wrong here. I'm talking about the perspective. See, And from the perspective of the ascetic traditions that I mentioned before, they are correct that when people do sex the way they regularly do it, they break, they, f they flop on the principle of brahmacharya to begin with. There's more involved there. And with no brahmacharya, you can forget about any spiritual uh, progress. And in order to keep that brahmacharya, the only way they knew how to do it 
was through their celibacy. The old tantrics of India, they stumbled upon, with the grace of God, something else. But they were like a minority. Even in India, these people who understood sexuality in a different way, they were not the majority in spirituality. They were maybe less than 5% in total. While most of the Indian mystics still went celibate. But these special uh, initiates in Tantra, in this uh, direction in Tantra, where they discovered a new uh, spiritual form of sexuality, they were a minority. And yet, they were there, and those, those directions still exist. And I'm about to give you the basic introductions for these things. So, Brahmacharya has to be maintained. Are you going to practice, uh, sorry, are you going to advance spiritually if you commit regular violence? The mystics say no. You will not have the peace of mind. You will create the peace of mind to focus and meditate and do your asanas, pranayamas and other practices efficiently. The mind will be ruffled like this. Two, you keep creating negative karma, which is going to bounce back upon you, which will come as obstacles on your spiritual path. The resonances your mind makes with thoughts of aggression and violence are going to bring those realities to you faster and faster. And the list of disadvantages of breaking ahimsa and being violent are long. And your progress is going to be stumbling. Same goes with all of the others. And brahmacharya has a key place in these don't do this and that. Do not waste the creative, sexual, vital energy. How does one waste the creative, vital energy? For a man, it's very, very straightforward and clear. The man loses what is called the ojas, this, this sexual energy, this vital sexual force, both in men and women, in the yogic tradition, is called ojas. It is also sub-called sometimes a virya. Patanjali says, by the perfection of brahmacharya, one reaches virya. And virya means efficiency. Efficiency in everything. You put yourself to making money, when you have your ojas, when you have your virya, you have efficiency in making the money. When you don't have this, no efficiency. The same thing goes with your spiritual practice. When you have your ojas, your spiritual practice yields results. When you don't have your ojas, whatever you do, and I'm going to insist on this some more this morning, I'm just giving you the headline just now, the basic. When you don't have your ojas, whatever practice you do has very weak or almost no results. So celibacy was a way to conserve the ojas. Uh, so I was saying that when the man loses his sperm, he loses this vital force called ojas. But as you know, when men have sex, either with their hands or with another human being, Sooner or later, the man ends up with an ejaculation. That ejaculation of his sperm is discharging him of the life vitality of this immense power, this immense transformative energy and power that is his ojas. And then his spiritual aspiration suffers, his practice yields feeble results or none at all. 
Similarly with women, there are certain fluids that are emitted from the yoni of the women, which are also losing the ojas. With the women, the issue is a bit uh, more delicate, because it's not as clear like just a sperm. With the women, it's something else. For example, the, the fluids from the yoni, which are more cream-like, creamy-like, whitish, thick, mucus-like fluids, which is called by the medical terms leucoria, which a woman tends to uh, have coming out of the yoni around the time of her ovulation, generally she has. Each woman is different, again. Some women almost don't have any leucoria. Some have abundant leucoria, like every day they are dripping with this fluid. Some have it just about the time of their uh, ovulation, right? But this leucoria, when, one, when the woman loses it, she discharges a certain, as a certain amount of erosions. And so a woman losing leucoria is losing the vital force. Also for the women, and I will not insist on this because it, it would take away the time we have, but for women, when the woman loses her, her menstrual blood that, that she loses during her menstrual cycle, that menstrual blood is, is through the loss of the menstrual blood, she loses her ojas. This makes women go complete apeshit, you know, it's like, what, what, what? I love my menstruation, huh? or they say, the curse of my life. And the women have followed this model that the society, uh, the medical system, as well as mummies, sisters, aunties, not to mention the priests, have propagated that menstruation is a healthy phenomenon and that every healthy woman should menstruate. It's not true. Menstruation is not a healthy phenomenon. But I don't want to insist on this given the time we have. Every woman should simply ask and say, what about my symptoms are healthy? So the mystics say, at least the tantric mystics, are saying that the menstrual blood can be conserved. It can be reabsorbed by the body. Your menstrual cycle can continue. But instead of, just like for a man, his sperm is made. It continues to get made by the testicles, right? But if the man will not ejaculate, like you have men in monasteries who are even young, so many of the yogis of India, who we remember, have photos of Yogananda. He joined his guru when he was about 10 years old. Again, it could be 9, 11, I don't know. He was a child. He went monastic life, ashram life, when he became of the age of puberty, and then 18, and 20, and 25. Do you think that this guy's testicles were not making sperm? Sure they were. But Yogananda says the history was virgin all his life. He didn't splash it, not even once. So then what happened to all the sperm his testicles made? No. Did he sweat it? Did he sneeze it? The body reabsorbs it. There's a capacity of your own body to reabsorb your own, in this case, sexual fluids and other things also. Ramakrishna was in exactly like this. He didn't ejaculate. But then what happened to his sperm? Similarly, so the, the male body can reabsorb its own sexual fluids. Similarly, the woman's body can reabsorb her sexual fluids. And the menstrual blood does not need to be wasted. It can be taken back by the body. So, it is via these two, for the men and women, that one loses a lot of ojas. And now let's see the consequences of having the ojas versus losing the ojas. And we'll go through the consequences 
at the level of the koshas, the bodies, like we did last night with the saucha presentation. Let's start with this one. When a man or a woman cultivates the ojas and doesn't lose it, they start to, their physical body starts to express, starts to know vitality, strength, their bones, their marrow, their blood, their tendons, their muscles, their, their brain and the functioning of the brain, the organs of the body, everything functions well. You have an optimal state of health. Again, there can be other factors why someone may be unhealthy. Like you can be full of ojas and have a cancer. Ramakrishna, at some point in his life, he got himself a cancer. He took a lot of karma from people and he was consuming it for them out of compassion, like most masters did. I was saying that there, there are other reasons why someone may be ill, yes, apart from just that they don't have ojas. But generally, when you have your ojas, you are more fit, more vital, more strong in the body. It's clearly seen in every man, and every woman can see it in the man, the moment he splashes it. Right? Before he splashes it, he's like, whoa, and he's the lion of lust, and he's breathing fire, and chasing you, and courting, and then he makes love, and then at some point he goes, oh baby, I'm coming. Ha, ha, ha. And then what happened to the great lion of lust? Gone to sleep, right? Hey guys, how do you feel when you splash it? Do you feel strong or do you feel squashed completely? Hmm? Women, how does a woman feel when she's menstruating? Like this or like this? Well, this loss of ojas accumulates. It builds more and more and more and what the men and women don't see is it's a progressive decline in their physical status. And only when they hold it for some time, like I challenge a man, keep your sperm in for three months, and then if you ejaculate after that, see what it feels like. In terms of how, your how you feel in the body, how your eyes function. You know, if, you're, if you have the perception if you notice your brain is also not what, like the way your brain chemistry is working, is not like it is when you're holding it back. So for the, for the physical vitality, physical strength, biological, you know, if when your ojas is down to zero, your biological life stops. If you want to prolong your lifespan, again, it's in the hands of your karma, and ultimately you need to move things over there. But... If you want to still put some effort, the idea is the more you conserve your ojas, the longer you tend to live. Some of you might be saying, well, I want to die as soon as possible. Life sucks already for me. Well, change your attitude. That's not the right attitude. No. If you can get another 10 years to find out who am I, why not? If you found out who you are really and you're enlightened, if you have another 10 years to help other people reach the same, why not? There's a perspective there, right? So if, if you want to increase your lifespan, remember, your ojas counts a lot. The more you lose your ojas, the quicker you're going to die. And you'll say, well, why not just uh, buy some more ojas? Right? I'm young, dumb, and full of cum, and I'm just going to splash it everywhere. 
And then, uh, when it's almost over, I'll just buy myself from Lazada or Amazon a big box of Ojas. You can't. The Ojas cannot be replenished. Not this Ojas that I'm talking about. If you go to India and talk to Ayurvedic doctors, they have a God knows how many Ojas, you know. And I'm not educated in that. But the Ojas they're mentioning, when they say Ojas, and the Ojas I'm mentioning here, are not the same. Because they'll tell you, of course, if you do like this and your Agni is good and you eat like that and not like this, you'll regenerate your Ojas. Yeah, that Ojas, sure, not this one. This Ojas, you're born, born with a tank of gasoline, so to speak. And the way you economize on this tank determines your life, physically and in other ways that I'm about to mention. And so, once lost, it's lost forever, this one. And therefore, one should really conserve the ojas. Second level, so think, first one is for your physical. Alright, second level is prana. The energy, the prana. Do you want to assimilate, accumulate prana? Do you want to be able to control prana with your mind? You need ojas. The, the great masters of Qigong and Tai Chi, for example, in another environment than India, they knew this. In China, this ojas is called Jing. Maybe they pronounce it in Mandarin in a completely different way. In English, it's written G-I-N-G. So I'm just reading it like I read English. Um, and they are... At, very strong about this. One shall not lose the Jing, because if you lose that, then your Tai Chi Qigong, it's weak. Morihi Yoshiba, the founder of Aikido, in which, again, it's about this prana, control over the prana, what they call Ki, was conserving his Ojas. He was not ejaculating. So if you want efficiency, virya, at the level of the physical body, at the level of the prana, you have to have audience. Muhammad Ali, the boxer, at his prime time, he recognized, he realized the impact of losing the sperm, of ejaculating. He didn't know ojas, he didn't know the terminology, and he didn't know why. He just noticed, when I splash it, I become inefficient in terms of my boxing skills. I don't sting like a butterfly and I don't, uh, sorry, <laughs> I don't dance like a butterfly and I don't sting like a bee. And therefore, Muhammad Ali was going about one month celibate before championship night. Because he knew if I splash it before this, no, I'm going to lose. He figured it out. Other athletes have also figured this thing out. So they refrained from sex. Well, if they knew there's a way to do it and not spill the ojas, that would make it very interesting, right? Maybe I should go and sell to the athletes this thing. Okay. Next level is your astral body, which means the, the, the maturity, the, the maturing of the energies in your astral body. It's about emotions. It's about desires, many attachments coming from the astral body. And when you look at most men and women, especially in this modern day where the ojas has been lost abundantly, you see that the astral body is not growing up. It's like a child. If you have a little, if you have a child and the, the physical body of the child is stumped and it doesn't grow, right, and then it becomes 20 years old, 30 years old, and it's still looking like a child, like a dwarf, right? You say, 
the, something was malfunctioning. This physical body didn't grow up. For most people in the modern times, the astral body is like this. It's not grown up in terms of its astral, the, the, its astral capacity or so better said astral maturity. You look at people emotionally, they are damaged goods. They have no control over their emotions and I don't mean suppress. When I say control, I'm saying they can't influence their emotions. When they go through an emotional state, the emotional state just runs them over, you know, like a train. And they are victims to their own emotions. They cannot even create, like, out, right now, I want to feel the emotion related to joy. And I'm going to feel it. No. They have to wait for someone to give them a Christmas gift to feel joy, you know, or their girlfriend or their boyfriend to suck their dick to feel joy. Uh, you get it? They can't create a mood. And when they go through whatever moods come just like this, they are victimized by it. Uncontrolled desires. Victims of their own attachments. You have your rojas, your astral body starts to mature. And then you start to get an efficiency over the energies in the astral body, which is an efficiency over the emotions. You become a master of your emotions, desires, attachments. Oh, just once again. Then you go to the level of the mental body. And now we are talking about the realm of ideas, genius, intelligence, intellect, the superior aspect of the mind. That means the ability to make mathematics, play chess well, yeah? do chemistry, to engage with these subjects, enjoy them, to come up with great ideas in, in certain fields, like to use the intellect well. And genius in, the, in creativity in the forms of music, art, architecture, um, science. In order for genius of the mind, like for your mind to mature, for the mental body to have energy and to be strong, you need the ojas again. Virya, efficiency. You want efficiency in terms of your intelligence, concentration, genius of the mind. You need the ojas. When Michelangelo paints the Sistine Chapel, he's celibate. You know the difference between that and some of the modern art, right? in terms of aesthetics, beauty, proportion, geometry, and divine inspiration. Johann Sebastian Bach composes music, and for the most of his life he was celibate. Of course, he had sex when he had to have kids, and that was it. He was living like a monk, celibate. The music of Johann Sebastian Bach expresses a certain divine aspect, purity, and arouses Anahata, Vishuddha, Sahasrara, for the most part, and the music expressed through Gangnam style and Mr. Gangnam style is going in a completely different direction. It's not, it doesn't create the same states, it doesn't evoke the same levels of consciousness, it definitely doesn't create the same mood, it doesn't create the same body language. If you dance to Gangnam style or you move your body to the Ave Maria, it's different, right? And one is more up and one is more down there. So in every, uh, any field you want to express genius and you want your mind to be able to think genius, to plug into the, those energies in the universe which are sophisticated, 
you need the ojas efficiency virya and then uh, going to uh, just as a sub thing here when you think about heroism milit crusade like basically i'm talking here about living with principles living with ideals you need the ojas people who lose their ojas become sensualists obsessed with pleasuring themselves through the senses and they'll eat through dead bodies to fulfill their lust for pleasure which means they'll you no know, they'll sell their mother if the price is right because they cannot live to certain principles certain ideals whereas when people have ojas they become idealists they live for principles even if it's uncomfortable like gandhi for the first 30 something 35 years of his life gandhi was splashing it big time as the history says then he went celibate because he realized this is ruining ruining my life and he said no more and from that time they emerged the mahatma the great soul that became the, that was gandhi no one knew what he is who he is he was a nobody while he still splashed it something grew up in the man and the man lives by certain ideals and certain principles truth non violence you know and he had to get beaten you know his principles and his adherence to them were put to test again and again he went to jail he didn't compromise on them it was not comfortable he could have easily said oh this doesn't work fuck it my life can be more easy no he adheres to the principles he lives with them he dies with them a man of a certain honor jona park was a woman who was not menstruating and jona park was a woman of principles courage and history has men and women who were like this so if you want to be a person who lives by principle and not by emotion who lives by principle and not attachment and desire who lives by ideals and not by the senses and the seduction of the senses then you need ojas and finally going to the causal body and even deeper it's about your spiritual aspiration that when you have your ojas you somehow at from then because of the build up of ojas it provokes the longing for knowing the self your aspiration to know the truth who am i really what is this universe from where am i coming where am i going and why am i here now what is all this who made me did anyone make me i don't know nothing and i want to know when you have ojas that comes this this spark this draw this longing for illumination for self recognition this is called ishwara pranidana in india and it's called bodhicitta in tibet and bodhicitta means bodhi is buddhahood and citta means the mind the thought you know the 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 thought towards enlightenment and they call the sexual fluids bodhicitta when you have bodhicitta have bodhicitta and two it is your sexual vital ojas your sexual vital force ojas that gives the efficiency the virya once again to your practice that whatever practice you make whether it's christian prayer whether it's kapala whether it's buddhist vipassana whether it's indian yoga whatever practice you make every path every legitimate path bona fide path is valid 
and has the 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 practices and the theology or metaphysics to help you reach the the acme of your or existence nirvana. But if you don't have the ojas with you, then all your practices worth nothing. As Ramakrishna in a parable says, two drunks slosh themselves in the night in Calcutta, in the city of Calcutta. It's a parable. And then they are greedy to drink some more. But the shops are closing because the alcohol is getting over. One drunk tells the other, says, brother, it's night time. And they're drunk. And it's dark. He says, let's steal a boat. The river Ganga passes through the two sides of Calcutta. Let's steal a boat. Row to the other side. There are shops open there longer. Let's no. Slosh more. Okay. In their drunken frenzy, they jump in a boat that doesn't belong to them and they start rowing and they row and they row, says Ramakrishna, and they row all night long. They don't reach the other shore. They quarrel, they say, You don't know, man, let me do it. They they get blisters in the palms, but they reach nothing. All night they row, then it becomes morning, dawn, sun is rising, they are less drunk and they can see better, and they observe. They're exactly where they started. So one tells the other, it seems we are going in circles all night long over here. They, Look, we're so drunk. And then a young man washing in the river overhears the whole conversation. And he, he sees, he analyzes the situation. And he tells them, no, you two idiots. You just didn't untie the boat. Says Ramakrishna about the matters of Ojas. A lot of effort, right? How much progress? Nothing. When you don't hold your ojas, you don't untie the boat. A steam engine only goes forward when it has steam. No steam, your steam engine is dead. Your spiritual engine only goes forward when you have ojas. Losing your ojas, your spiritual engine is like a boat that's going nowhere. And I'm making efforts. Why don't I see progress? I'm doing my vipassana. I'm doing my yoga. Yes, because you haven't untied the boat. Your ojas is not with you. You're splashing the ojas. And therefore, the virya, the efficiency, is compromised. That's why, for the, and these are significant reasons, every one of them. The mystics have been mostly interested in the spiritual aspect. They say the body is going to die anyway, but still, while it's there, why not have it vital? Do you want to reach your, uh, your as your years mature, do you want to go there like this, in a wheelchair? Or do you want to be like this? Of course, there is entropy in your body, your physical body, is going to become ash or food for the worms or however you dispose it of, right? That's clear. But that entropy can be controlled. That is going down is inevitable. But you can pace it in a way where it goes down elegantly and you still, you know, are going down into that entropic end, physically of course, I mean here, well. And the ojas can't be regenerated. This is the prime reason why the mystics went celibate. Now, in India, there has been, as I mentioned before, a path emitted by the Tantric Yogis inspired through Shiva, which engages the sexual activity. 
And these tantric mystics have a very different opinion about the relationship, uh, relationship of sex and spirituality. And they say, actually, these two are very friendly with each other. And that sex is a sin is not true. For those Indian mystics, Shiva and Shakti are banging it out big time on Mount Kailash and the whole mountain is shaking. Hmm? So are these ascetics wrong? Understand, at the time when Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism emerged, human beings, the public, they were peasants, they were shepherds, they were copper beaters, they were slaves, you know. These people did not, had not cultivated a more refined intelligence. And you had to express things to them with do's and don'ts, with consequences of heaven or hell, to get them to listen. And they had to demonize sex, to make people do it as little as possible, only for the sake of procreation, because the only way they knew sex would happen is with losing the ojas, and they wanted people to conserve the ojas, primarily in the name of their divine aspiration, efficiency in prayer, and their faith in God. And, and the way this was done is by telling them sex is a sin and God is pissed off against it and blah, blah, blah. And that was that. The effect was, yes, people did refrain from sex and conserve the ojas. But the tantric say beyond the boogeyman stories, what's the real relationship of sex and spirituality? And just look even at the surface value of it. A good lovemaking, a very good, intimate lovemaking, takes two and makes them one, temporarily. It unites that your lovemaking has a potential for true love. That most people don't reach that true love, that's true, and that's sad because they don't do it, they have not been educated to harness the power of the sexual act correctly. One, that they lose the momentum, they lose the ojas, they lose the energy, and then it's dead for the moment. Plus, they don't keep the ojas in to cultivate. To, it's like my own sexual desire, lust, which otherwise could be condemned by religion and spirituality. That lust in Tantra is not condemned. That lust becomes your vehicle. It becomes the, a stepping stone. That you use your lust. You go into your lust consciously. You enjoy your, you go into your sexual desire with a conscious awareness and through the act of making love and the processes of sublimation, you sublimate the energies, the energies of the, the first chakra, the second chakra related to sexuality. And you move that energy up. You transform it. And by the end of that love making, you began with lust, you end up with love. You begin with lust, you end up with prayer. You begin with lust, you end up with transfiguration. You begin with lust, you end up with who am I? And I don't mean the first ten times you do it, it's about enlightenment. But I'm saying, you use the sexual energy, which you don't waste, and you use it as a resource towards your meditation, towards to empower your mantras, to add the efficiency in the contemplations of who am I. And so this is a resource, say those tantrics. And so yeah, there is a path of 
yoga, tantric yoga, a path of spirituality as valid as Christianity, as valid as Hatha yoga and Karma yoga and the other you know, Bhakti yoga, as valid, which is a path in which men and women come together and they make love. And the love making becomes a spiritual practice towards the awakening of the consciousness, towards the recognition of the spirit. It's not entertainment. It's not, uh, oh baby, it's not about romance. It's not even about pleasure. The, the truth is that on this path of sexual tantra, the, your sexual experience in terms of intimacy and pleasure, orgasms, pre-orgasms and orgasms, is going to amplify exponentially. But that's not the goal of it. That's not the objective of it. More pleasure, more fun. Because all pleasure will be choked by pain. Even your sexual pleasure. There's no infinity in pleasure. Pleasure comes and pleasure goes. What you're looking for is happiness. What you're looking for is eternity. And that pleasure cultivated on the path of sexual tantra is your vehicle. You have to ride it. You have to trace it back to its source. That your sexual pleasure, as well as every other pleasure, say the tantrics, like you, you drink a cup of warm chocolate, hot chocolate, and olfactory pleasure, right? You smell an amazing incense, or you walk past a jasmine tree, which at night has blossomed. And it's like, ah, oh, and you get gustatory pleasure or massage and tactile pleasure, any form of pleasure. The tantric yogis say, what is the source of that pleasure? Where does it come from? And they tell us this every manifestation of pleasure comes from the pleasure, so to speak, yeah, that comes really pleasure, from the ananda, from the bliss, from the cosmic ecstasy of Shiva and Shakti. It's a reflection of a reflection of a reflection, our little pleasures of life, of that cosmic ecstasy, the cosmic orgasm. And through any of these pleasures, sexual or non-sexual, one can trace it back to its source and merge into the Shiva consciousness. And so the path of sexual tantra cultivates the, this orgasmic pleasure as a vehicle to ride all the way to cosmic consciousness. The, the truth of this has been under your nose all along. If you have ever experienced an orgasm, it's right under your nose. The secret is right there. That the orgasm is your gateway to nirvana. Nirvana has often been, uh, in a poetry kind of way, called the cosmic orgasm. Why do they call it the cosmic orgasm? They could have called it something else. Why compare it to the... No, the sexual thing. The regular human being in their regular lovemaking has a momentary orgasm at this little genital area over here with the discharge of the ojas with those terrible consequences. And the orgasms are... I went to the door, but I didn't make it in. But look at the nature of an orgasm. 
in an orgasm, you go into a mini, the regular orgasm, you go in a mini void. For a moment, your mind stops. For a moment, time stops, space stops. And it is ecstasy. That's why you chase sex. Would you run after sex if there was no orgasm? If there was... You wouldn't. Maybe you'd have it for procreation, but you wouldn't be running after it big time, right? It's right there. But we don't make it through. If one can sustain the orgasm, and the way one can sustain the orgasm is first of all by controlling the sexual energy that when one enters the orgasm, as man and woman, you don't explode that energy out. You keep it in. You sublimate it. You move that orgasm from here higher. I mean, what would it be to orgasm in the heart? Again and again and again and again and again. You know the genital orgasm, and it's amazing, and it's lots of pleasure, right? What would it be to orgasm over here? What would be an orgasm over here? If you would orgasm over here long enough, you would establish yourself in the state of nirvana. And therefore, on the path of sexual tantra, it's about moving the sexual energy, not discharging it, but sublimating it in the act of making love and, of course, in the life. And moving the pleasure and the resources of that energy higher and higher up along the chakras and deeper into your bodies, into your koshas that we just talked many times about. Through the ex expanding the consciousness through the momentum of the sexual act and the power of the sexual act, focusing that sexual energy with the mind where it has to be focused, in that, sex, in that orgasmic drunkenness to use mantras, to visualize yantras, to pray, to transfigure. This is what this path is about. And through the sexuality, which according to these tantric mystics is so friendly with spirituality, you can reach nirvana. This part of sexual tantra is amazing, but one has to do it by its rules. The big mistake most modern people when they come into sexual tantra make, their big mistake is, one mistake is that they think it's about more fun and pleasure. That's the goal. It's not. And when they come to sexual tantra for more fun and pleasure, sooner or later they run away crying because they suffer. It is inevitable. It's not for more fun and pleasure, because that will be more pain and suffering. But they come, and as much as you tell them, it's about enlightenment, it's about evolution, it's like, fun, fun, fun. Let's make an orgy, let's do some feather touching, let's make some yoni massage, lingam massage. There's nothing wrong with romance and touching with feathers and doing massages, nothing wrong with it. That all of that can be grafted well into this part of sexual tantra that I'm mentioning now. It can be in there. You can add to it. You can make it flavored. But to add massages and feather touches and romance and forget that it's a part of enlightenment, you lose completely. The other thing that people come into sexual tantra is 
with all their attachments, their attitude of attachment, all their prehistoric pain and suffering, heartbreaks, God knows whatever else they come in, all their, you know, blindness they come in. And then they try to bring all of that and graft it into the path of Tantra. It will not work. You have to do Tantra by its way. For example, you have these five, a simple example, of, you have these five restraints, yamas, Brahmacharya being the fourth of them. You know what the fifth of them is? It's Aparigraha. And it means non-possessiveness, non-attachment. Live a life of non-attachment. Tantra says, if you're going to do sex, you're going to inevitably have some kinds of relationships, right? Well, have that relationship or relationships with detachment, non-attachment. I don't mean coldness, carelessness. I don't care. Like some superficial, we're just fucking around. And uh, you don't really care. No, involve and love and go fully into it with detachment. If you want to be attached, be attached to Shiva. That attachment is allowed. In fact, it is necessary. Every other attachment is a source of pain and misery. And it's clearly mentioned. And yet people will not adhere. They insist on making relationships with full possessiveness, attachment, and from there the jealousies, insecurities, fears, and whatnot. And they suffer endlessly. This sexual path is a path of ecstasy. And for most people, sooner or later, it becomes a path of agony. Why? Because I refuse to grow up. I refuse to mature. I refuse. No. It, Think about a relationship in which the man and women are physically abusive to each other, breaking ahimsa. Again and again, like many times a day. Can that qualify as a spiritual relationship? No. Think of a relationship in which the man and woman steal from each other, like they get into each other's passwords, bank account, PayPal, and they steal. Spiritual relationship? But when it comes to possessiveness, people are doing it all the time. And it's kosher. The whole society advocates it. Right? It won't work. Aparigraha is only one of the many rules of Tantra. Which go against your ego. They go against your comfort zones. They go against your boundaries. And for Tantra, your consent is not needed. The way of the path is the way of the path. And you either do the path the way it has to be done, or you don't do it at all. You come to Tantra because it's, oh, it seems, sounds fun. But you have to realize that the path is not there for fun. It is there to, to diminish your attachment to your own ego, to purify your negativities, attachments, false desires, foolish hopes, and foolish dreams and to exalt you in divine awareness. That's its function. And for that you have to be ready to lose your attachment to your ego. To purify yourself from all forms of lesser tendencies. If you're not willing to do this, then elegantly refrain from sexual tantra and go and do a path in which there's no sex. Buddhism. 
There, there's no question about attachment to men and women because there is no man and woman. You're alone. You're a monk, you're a nun. You know, and you practice your detachment, non-attachment in that way. But when you're in Tantra, the rules are different. You're in it. You're in an active Aparigraha. Not the passive Aparigraha where I don't have and therefore I can't be attached. You have. And that non-attachment goes to everything else. Your money, your, your body, your points of view, your perspectives. Non-attachment to your past which you carry along all the time. We all do it. We carry it. No. We carry all our pains to the present moment and then we say, oh, but she did, he did. No, you're doing it. You're pulling it all the time. Because there's, it serves something. I get to be a victim. I get to complain. I get to blame someone. And the consequence is, I suffer. Is it worth it? So if you're coming to sexual tantra, be prepared to die to yourself the way you are. That, you know, like Rumi says, I want to die to myself and I want to live only to you. Any path you go on, this has to be. People, when you go to a monastery, it's clear, it's in your face all the time. When they come to Tantra, people get fuzzy and they think it's about expanding my ego. It's about becoming more, you know, look at me, look at me, I, you know, I am the most sexy woman in the Shakti group. I am, I can orgasm like this. I am the big, big Walter who goes around penetrating women and I don't splash it. That's what they come to Tantra for. They come to do their romance. It will not work. That's why I'm insisting. We've seen it long enough and I'm insisting a lot. While it is a fabulous path, it's fabulous as much as you're ready to die to yourself as you are so that you can know yourself as the immortal light of consciousness. Enough of this. Questions? Uh, you mentioned being fully in it uh, and detached. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, fully in what? In a relationship, in, a, in love uh, with someone. I can talk a lot about it. But I'll talk a little because you guys also have to do your practice soon. On the spiritual path, on any spiritual path, or let's say on most spiritual paths, and definitely on the sexual tantric path, one of the qualities of consciousness that we want to cultivate is love, the true love, the love from here. Yeah? And love will not emerge in a relationship, even in myself, which is restraining. Love only grows in the climate, in the environment of freedom. Ego likes to make bonds and restrict for its own protection and comfort zones. Love lives free and sets free. Because even to say love sets free is wrong. Because love recognizes freedom. It recognizes the spirit is free. How can you cage a free spirit? You can never cage it. If you try to cage it, you're going to be disappointed. Have you not seen it in your life? And so Tantra, and wherever there has been love, it is known love will only flower and blossom when there is freedom. All forms of attachment and possessiveness, which come from our own inadequacies, fear, pain, 
and addiction to what gives us pleasure. It is from this that we come up with rules and regulations, you know, to restrict others and they to us, out of their fear. And we live like chickens and we die like chickens. And the truth is, did you find the happy, enlightened, loving couple with attachment and possessiveness? Did you ever see it happening? Ever? Never. It's never going to happen. But think about a relationship in which a man, a woman, they are present to each other here and now, in the moment. You are here, I'm here. I expect nothing from you. I'm not falling for any of your expectations. Like two people who don't make expectations on each other. Because the moment you have expectations, you're not here and now. Your expectations are another facade of uh, uh, protection against future pain. Perceived, prospective future pain. Like if they'll do like this, then I'll be in pain. In order to not be, I'm going to expect that they should and shouldn't do like that, right? Look into the psychology of it. It's elementary. It's childlike stuff. Every child does this. And uh, they, they can't be present. If you can't be present, how are you going to love? Who are you going to love when you're not even here and now? Guys, there's only one moment to live and to love. One moment. And it's always here. And now. Where you are with who you are. There is no other time. What will happen tomorrow? Tomorrow we'll see. The good news is if you live like this in every moment, your tomorrows are going to be like this. But people don't have the courage to live like this. They want security for a tomorrow. Did it ever work? Not to mention, as I've told you before, that when people engage in their relationships, they engage from a serious state of emptiness, and I don't mean as a cosmic emptiness, the cosmic shunyata void, empty like I don't love myself. I'm not good enough, I'm not sexy enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not intelligent enough. My ass, my nose, my bum, my bicep. Ah, 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 ah. People are not comfortable being alone. They don't feel love, not even for themselves. How are they going to love somebody else? And they go looking around for someone to give them attention. To distract them from their inner emptiness. And when they find that person, they say, I love you to that person. And the other one does the same. Two beggars, begging for love, thinking they love each other. And sooner than later, it's going to show in the face directly. No? And then they blame each other. You betrayed me. I can't trust you. You broke my heart. Madness. Like it, it's complete madness. And I, for me, I was in it for a long time also. No? But with the grace of God, stepping out of it gradually, and I'm looking, it's like, how can I not get this right? Like, it's so clear. Be full. Love is around you everywhere as an energy in the macrocosm. Do your spiritual practices and plug into the cosmic love. Feel Shiva's love for you. Even if you can't love yourself, the divine consciousness, say all the mystic, loves you as you are perfectly. Your mom will not love you perfectly, nor will your dad, nor will nobody love you perfectly. But the divine consciousness in whichever way, form, name you come, loves you exactly as you are. Focus upon this one to begin with. 
not him telling you to love God. I'm saying feel the inexhaustible, perfect love and compassion upon you that's here now and has always been. Fill yourself up. Be centered and rooted in yourself. And I mean self, not as ego, but that's where the spirituality comes in. People do relationships without having their spiritual core developed. And it's a fiasco. You know, just like you need to qualify for driving, and you definitely need to qualify to fly planes, why should not there be a qualification to be able to do a relationship? Because you have accidents happening all the time. And no one's learning, even from the accidents. They go and repeat it with another person then. And so, first, root yourself in consciousness. Root yourself in love. And then go out there and offer it. And then there is no attachment and possessiveness because I have no fear. I have nothing to lose. You're here with me. I'm with you. This is the moment. Let's love. There will be another moment. There may not be another moment. But in me trying to attach, possess, and trying to make my security, and no, uh-huh, uh-huh. did it ever work? Live here, live now. Love freely. This is the form of love, as much as my words can convey, that Tantra wants to ask to learn. But for that, you have to diminish your attachment to the ego. In the beginning, it's true, the ego keeps on saying, what's in it for me? What about me? What about me? And the answer is simple. Death. That's what it's in for you. Nothing else. Sit quietly, you imbecile ego, pathological bad advisor of my life. Now I'm taking charge. You're no longer running my life. While my physical body exists, you can continue the functions of making me breathe and giving me hunger so I can eat and all that continues. But you're not making decisions for me anymore and you're not pretending to love on my behalf anymore. I am consciousness and bliss without form and I'm going to live my life through this. And the ego will keep on trying to scratch you and say, but me, 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 remember me, I'm your old friend. He says, quiet boy, quiet. You're no longer in charge. You're a humble servant now, you're not the master of my being. I have taken charge. And then it's about persisting because the ego will fight you. And your attachment to the ego, as much as you're attached, you're going to fall. And if you fall, you stand up and you move forward again. And you fall again to the games of the ego. And you stand up and you move forward again. And you will win. 